to Black History Mini Docs Podcast. Welcome to Black History Mini Docs Podcast. I'm Akisha McCants, founder of Whole Body Literacy and Education, aka Wibble and host of Wibble's weekly podcast, Education as Liberation. You can find that podcast on anchor.fm slash Wibble or wherever you get your podcast. Wibble is an educational consultancy company that designs literacy-rich and theater-informed workshops and programming that activate, inspire, encourage, and nurture individual and collective growth, discourse, truth-telling for equity and social change. I am so excited to host Black History Mini Docs podcast, and today's guests are joining us from Boston, Massachusetts, doing important work to bring equity to the financial sector for Black and Brown small businesses in Boston and beyond. Featured in Inside Philanthropy and Forbes for their revolutionary approach to business, investment meets community growth, the Ujima Boston Project is a cooperative business, arts, and investment ecosystem, including a democratically governed investment fund. We have with us two amazing Black women behind the Ujima Project. We have Sierra Michelle Peters. She is an artist, DJ, and organizer. She is the Director of Communications at Boston Ujima Project. Additionally, she is the co-founder of Print Ain't Dead, a bookstore and publishing platform for literary and text-based artifacts produced by Black, Brown, and Indigenous artists. Welcome, Sierra. Hi, Akisha. Thank you for having us. Thank you for being here. And also we have with us Nia Evans, director of the Boston Ujima Project. Her educational background is in the areas of labor relations, education leadership, and policy. Her advocacy includes a focus on eliminating barriers between analysts and people with lived experiences, as well as increasing acknowledgement of the value of diverse types of expertise in policy. Evans has a BS in industrial and labor relations from Cornell and a Master of Arts in Education Leadership with a course of study in leadership, policy, and politics from Teachers College at Columbia University. She has also studied abroad at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia, where she focused on international labor relations. So basically, you know she knows the business. Welcome, Nia. Thank you, Akisha. Thank you so much. So the Ujima Project has made an indelible impact on the Boston financial landscape and what will be three years in September, which is not a long time to make such a big impact on a city like Boston. Nia, as the founding director of Ujima Boston, how did this project come to fruition? Thank you, Akisha. And once again, thank you for inviting Boston Ujima Project uh, on to talk about our work. We're super excited to be here. Uh, There are two origin stories that I tell about Ujima. Uh, One is at the business level and one is at the grassroots organization level. Um, Both deal with uh, similar problems, which is funding or financing. Um, The origin story that deals at the small business level uh, is actually the creation of a business uh, called Cerro uh, Co-op, which is a worker-owned composting co-op. The deal with that story is uh, Ujima's uh, primary co-founder, Aaron Tanaka, uh, Ujima's his brainchild, was uh, the ED, the executive director of an organization called Boston Workers Alliance. So this was years ago. I would say this is probably about eight to 10 years ago. 
this organization uh, was working to reintegrate people returning home from incarceration to their communities, primarily focusing on employment. Uh, and it was an organization that was primarily serving black and brown uh, families in Boston. Um, they were notable uh, for being part of a coalition that passed Cori reform and Cori is your criminal record and what type of access employers have to your uh, criminal record. And they were notable as being part of a coalition in Massachusetts uh, that made Massachusetts a second state to pass ban the box legislation, which means your employers cannot ask about your criminal history on your employment application. So still facing uh, discrimination, stigma as a result of their incarceration um, and no longer, no longer wanting to be um, uh, at the, held at the whims of employers to, to overlook their uh, history and to, and to employ them. And so what they said was, well, we'd like to create employment opportunities for ourselves. And they looked into starting a business venture. They then knew that there was legislation coming down the pipe with regards to food waste that said uh, organizations, businesses, companies that create more than four tons of food waste would be required to compost. And uh, the group said, well, there's, there's quite possibly some entrepreneurship opportunities, which means some employment opportunities for ourselves in this. We could be people that can help uh, organizations, businesses, and companies comply with this law. They created uh, a composting uh, co-op. We're talking about a group of people who would experience much uh, discrimination uh, in the employment market. Um, they experienced that same discrimination when it came to financing their venture. Um, so they didn't have all of the money uh, that they needed to start the, start the business. Most people don't. Um, so they ran into the same roadblocks. Aaron Tanaka, who I mentioned earlier, at that, by that time was at an organization called Boston Impact Initiative, which was uh, an impact investor. Uh, so he was able to help Cedral access uh, alternative financing. So they weren't able to get the traditional financing, but they were able through uh, close partnership with Boston Impact Initiative, uh, and other peers and partners get financing for their venture. And so the way it looked was they did a DPO, they did something called a direct public offering, which is like an IPO, um, except it's way more uh, accessible. Um, and so through that DPO, community members could, could invest a minimum of $2,500. Uh, and through that process, they raised $350,000. They also received a grant from the Barr Foundation uh, they received a loan from Boston Impact Initiative, and I think it was probably about $10,000 or $20,000, and it was considered um, f uh, recoverable or forgivable, meaning there was an agreement that if they couldn't pay it back, it would convert to a grant. So very uh, generous uh, terms. And then uh, it's a worker-owned company, uh, so then there was just kind of the sweat equity of the, of the workers. Um, so that process of creating this venture and helping this venture to get finance from all these different corners when they couldn't get a bank loan um, planted the seed for Aaron to think about what could happen um, if we did work like this more often. So um, what, that, what that process unearthed was what's possible when different types of people in a community get together. What's possible when different types of money in a community get, get together. And then what's also possible when two sectors or two worlds who don't normally talk to each other, which is the organizing world that Aaron came out of, Boston Workers Alliance, 
um, and, and the finance world, uh, which is the world he had, he had gone into. Um, and I shouldn't mention Deborah Freeze. I think, I think it's always important to kind of mention all of the different people that are, that are involved in efforts because so often we tell stories as if a singular person did it and that's never the case. Um, and so Deborah Freeze was the founder of De Boston Patch Initiative. So that also had them thinking about, wow, so we have these two sectors who are not often in conversation together. They were in close partnership with each other. Um, and then we had all of these different types of people working together uh, to create this venture. Um, what's possible? And, and, and what I should say is it's not just creating a venture, but again, creating a venture where there were obstacles, where the usual players um, were not supportive, banks, et cetera. Uh, so what's possible if we do something like this more often? So what's possible if we bring all of the different types of people that I mentioned? So that I mentioned we have regular community members, we have community organizers, we have grassroots organizations, we have foundations, we have uh, investors, um, and then we have small business owners. Um, and so those are the people and then the different types of money. So we have loans, we have grants, and we have investments. What's possible if we um, bring those factors together over and over and over again, we could probably um, do a lot more than we see happening in our communities uh, particularly. So that, that's one origin story. The second origin story is around the same time. Uh, again, Boston Impact Initiative uh, City Life Vita Urbana, which is Boston's premier housing justice uh, organization uh, that just recently won um, the strongest eviction and foreclosure moratorium in the nation in the wake of the pandemic. Uh, so really just wanting to point out the importance of organizing in this and the, and the importance of bringing an organizing lens to work um, where previously there had not been. Uh, and uh, Center for Economic Democracy, which was then the organization that Aaron later set up. Those three organizations in 2014 uh, started a, a public, started a study group to see what it would take to start a public bank. And again, as I said, they were trying to, they were thinking of a similar problem, funding and financing. And their question was, um, how do we fund ourselves sustainably as grassroots orgs? Um, what most of us do right now is we receive uh, funding from philanthropy, we receive funding from foundations. Um, it's, a, it's a hell of a process. Um, it's quite the cycle of endless uh, applications. Um, and depending on what type of relationship or partnership you have with the funder or what type of connection or how distant or close it is, um, you definitely can feel like you're at the whims of, of, um, of funders kind of preferences, which can change at any time. Um, and you spend a lot of work trying to fund the work and the proportion of actually being able to do the work as opposed to trying to fund the work that you want to do is out of whack. So they were after how to change that. And they thought maybe it would be a public bank. So in 2014, for a year, they studied all sorts of different financial uh, institutions and products and models. Uh, so regular banks, CDFIs, loan funds, like the, like the one that we have, uh, participatory budgeting processes. They were also after um, what types of processes and models, again, really very explicitly focus on involving community members, it being community-led and community-driven, and uh, being focused on, on Black, Brown, and Indigenous people. And what they learned um, 
by the end of the study group period was a public bank is really hard to start. So at the time there was only one in America, uh, in North Dakota that it started 100 years ago. More recently, um, one has uh, been created in American Samoa three years ago. And then last year, California passed legislation uh, that will enable localities in California to start one if they want to. So it's, it's, re it's a really hard uh, endeavor. Um, and uh, so they said, well, even if it wasn't so hard, um, like I said, we're thinking about funding and financing our organizations. They were also thinking about the wider context that we operate in, which is Boston at the time, much like other uh, communities were facing uh, deep uh, gentrification and displacement. Uh, at the time, Boston was number one, actually, for the fastest gentrifying uh, city in the country. Um, it was also number one in inequality uh, for in its, in its kind of metro category in the country. Um, and a f report had recently come out from the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston um, that showed a really just stunning uh, racial wealth gap. Um, and so operating against that uh, backdrop, um, the group also said, you know, we're, we are also, the work we're doing is within the context of the, or the framework of really uh, deeply entrenched systemic issues. And so uh, deeply entrenched systemic issues require systemic address. So this whole thing, what happens in a nonprofit sector a lot of times, where you kind of pick one thing, you're, you're looking at a problem and then you say, there's, there's this one reason that this problem exists. And so now we're gonna do something that really attacks this one reason um, is inadequate. Because again, we're looking at uh, multiple systemic issues that are intertwined. Um, that create actually a re really complex um, issues um, for us to wade through, which is why they're so enduring. And so the group said, so then we have to do more than one thing at the same time, because what we've been studying um, have been uh, solitary efforts in isolated in different places. And so what we're curious about now is if we take these efforts that have shown to be very powerful. And if we put them together into one system and we do it in one place, um, let's see how powerful that can be. So that's, that's what Ujima is. So that's, where we, that's why we call it a, an ecosystem because it's actually uh, quite a few processes, models, uh, structures combined into one in one place. Wow, that's incredible. Um, that's a heck of an origin story. <laughs> and the centering of the people is really what I'm picking up. The centering of the people, mm -hmm. of people who have been disenfranchised and, and cast aside is really powerful. And I love the, the fact that it is considered an ecosystem. And we, we have been talking about taking care of the earth. And we know that there are great disparities around healthy living for black and brown communities. So this is amazing. Um, uh, as you have taken the helm, what have been some of your historical influences and how has that mission evolved over time? But first, I do just want to back up a little bit and say Ujima Swahili for collective work and responsibility. Um, and so sometimes I say to people, if you really want to get an idea of our principles and values, um, every single uh, word in that phrase uh, mm -hmm. is apt. Collective work and responsibility. This is based on the premise 
that decision making that impacts us should be made by us. Mm. It's that simple. We believe and we know that we have all of the different uh, expertise and experience to make those decisions. Um, and we also have the capacity to learn and we also have the capacity to build skills. So we, we know that we are well equipped um, to make decisions, for example, about what gets invested in our communities, what gets uh, created, what gets developed and what gets planned in our communities. It should be us uh, because we are the users and we are the ones who will be impacted. So that's the, that's the, that's one of the collective pieces. Um, the other collective piece is um, there's a community stake. Um, so uh, of course we, we know we will, and we believe we will benefit individually in terms, as I mentioned, the racial wealth gap. Um, this is also a wealth building vehicle. So the idea behind investment is if you do it well, you get a return um, and then we're able to reinvest and again, able to continue to build up our communities as well as our individual wealth. Um, but it isn't just about individual wealth, it's about community wealth because we all have a, a stake in each other. So just as I said, you know, we, we're talking about systemic issues that are intertwined. Um, people, you know, it's a cliche, but people are not islands. Yeah. We are all connected, we are all intertwined. Um, our fates uh, depend on each other. And so we should be able to do decision-making together as well. So we should be able to come together um, and discuss uh, what's important to us as a community. Um, you make a very good point there, Nia. You know, especially in this era of COVID-19, where we've learned right. how much we really do depend on one another and how, mm -hmm. how um, dangerous it is to think uh, you know, that we shouldn't care about the next person. Um, right. I want to bring uh, Sierra into this conversation because I know that you've kicked up your impact here at Ujima. In response to COVID-19, you launched a worker and resident care fund. Um, and actually, before we dig into that, podcast listeners and viewers, I'm sure you are just as inspired as I am by the words that Nia has shared with us about Ujima's foundation. Um, I want you to leave your comments and questions on our thread. And we're going to come back to talk about the work that you're doing right now, how this evolution into, you know, it has always been rooted in community. Um, but let's check out this Black History Mini Doc real quick. The little town of St. Anne's Bay, situated on the north coast of Jamaica, was chosen as the birthplace of Marcus Messiah Garvey. The date of this modern miracle was August 17, 1887. Garvey was a man who, in retrospect, was far ahead of his time. This is clearly proven by the fact that his ideologies have resurfaced today and could be considered a major factor in the liberation of African peoples the world over. After the First World War, there was a resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan influence in the United States. African people were by this time more than ready for a Moses, and only a black man could express the depth of their feelings. On June 10th, 1940, at the age of 53, Marcus Messiah Garvey died in London of a severe stroke without having set foot in Africa. But his impact there was tremendous. He left a rich legacy of history for us to study and utilize in our continued quest for independence 
and liberation as a people. Mini Docs.